So you can turn to Malachi chapter, really the end of chapter 2. If you turn to chapter 3, it's just a verse up from that. And uh, we'll start there. And so last week, you know, we're continuing again. This is uh, after the Israelites had been exiled after the warning of the prophets. And they've, you know, they were exiled for 70 years, uh, more so for uh, some of the others, but Judah had been exiled for 70 years, and then they were allowed to go back, and they rebuilt their temple, and they rebuilt their city walls, and got established, and it wasn't too much uh, longer that they um, yeah, they started uh, becoming complacent in their faith. And so that's kind of what we've seen. And last week, you know, it was probably a lot, and I didn't really get, just because of time, didn't get a chance to just summarize, but... Really, what, what we saw last week was, was the marriage issues. It was the affecting the family and the, the problems that they were having. And one was that they were marrying foreigners. And we looked at that of like why the, the problem with the Israelites, why they were com- uh, commanded not to do so. And uh, really, it came down to uh, idolatry. When you marry, you know, your spouse has a different belief system than you. Um, you know, sometimes in our minds, we think, well, we can have an influence on them. And that's true. But uh, a lot of times they have an influence on us. And overall, as a nation, it would have had, you know, that would have had a detrimental effect. You know, even if it was like, you know, half swayed one way and half swayed the other, that's not what God wants, right? God wants all of them to be followers. And so just don't engage in that behavior. And so that was one of the issues that they were seeing. And then the other one was that they were divorcing their wives and that they were, you know, uh, usually it was the man that could divorce the wife uh, in that time. And so he said, you know, basically said, I hate divorce. Depends on the translation that you have is that that's what the Lord said. That's not how I intended. Um, you know, we live in a sinful world, but in there, the way that they were uh, doing it, uh, he was reminding them of the covenant that they made. And there's just a lot of times and we could spend a lot more time just kind of talking about that, um, that issue. But uh that was kind of the, the thrust of what we get to chapter 2. And he starts to, as he gets to the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, um, adjusting their focus. Uh, even, even that effect of, you know, first we saw that the priests were offering deficient sacrifices, that they weren't taking their priesthood seriously. We see marriage is now affected. And then today, we're going to really see how the, the people um, misunderstand who God is and how God works. Uh, and there is great application for us today. Um, so to get our kind of kind of kickstart this, I just want us to quickly think. So I'm gonna have two questions. One is um, when you think, if I say the attributes of God, why don't you just name off five? So just kind of rap, rapid fire. I'll just take the first five attributes of God that you can name. All knowing, eternal, all love, wrath. Okay, wait, so we got all-knowing, <laughs> eternal, wait, that was good, I, I, I asked you for it, and you gave it to me. So all-knowing, eternal, uh, loving, wrath, and what was that? Holy. holy, okay, okay, so all-knowing, eternal, wrath, loving, holy, okay. So we just kind of kept those in mind, we could, you know, we could throw 20 more other, other things out there. Uh, I don't know if I should put it on the board as a good teacher, but if you can kind of mentally think of that, uh, all-knowing, eternal, it's kind of attributes of who God is that we don't have. Uh, loving and uh, wrathful. And what was the fifth one? Holy, holy right, and holy. And, and so those would be communicable attributes that we can, we can share with him, although not in the way that, 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 we, that they have. All right, so I'm going to write them down. So the other five things, because it's going to come quick too, what are five things when we think about 
American culture, what are five, you know, five descriptions that you would talk about for American culture? Are you just going to do the contrast of that? (laughs) Okay. All right. So prideful, unloving, not not knowing. I don't know. (laughs) Narcissistic. Okay. Selfish. uh, Some some of those things. Now, um, so we we have in one mind, we have category about who God is, and then we have a category about the culture around us, the world around us, which we are immersed in. And uh, when we think about the marriage aspect of, of uh, how even in the family that can be altered by if you, know, you have competing interests, especially about God, and that's why God commanded them not to do that. But then we're set in a world surrounded by different beliefs. And if we kind of said, what does the culture look like? That's the culture that we say of America, and we would probably say the same thing if we looked at what Israel's culture was as well. When they came back, you know, they came back, remember I said that Assyrians and the Babylonians deported the people, and then they imported people in, and so when they came back to their land, it wasn't like, you know, an empty house that they were like, just, you know, we left this for you, not knowing if you'd come back. It was... Uh, it was the fact that uh, there were people there, people living there. And so even though they got their city back, I mean, they would have had been surrounded again by a lot of, a lot of different people. Un, you know, not unlikely what we would deal with today. And so because of that, we're going to see kind of the same thing that we deal with and that they dealt with uh, kind of fleshed out. So at the end of chapter 2... Uh, we read that Malachi says, or really through the Lord says through Malachi, he says, you wear the Lord with your words. Again, if uh, you've missed like the last you know, couple times we've gone through Malachi, when you read through Malachi, he poses these, he poses these kind of statements. You have done this. And then he, he, repeat, he follows it up with a question because they're ignorant about what they're doing. Right? It's kind of like the prophet coming and saying, you're messing up. And they're like, well, what way are we messing up? So he's filling in the blanks for them by asking some of these questions. So you've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, well, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so fundamentally, right here in this, one, you know, this verse, we see a misunderstanding about God. Uh, the Israelites, and again, like, let's, we can put ourselves in this situation. You know, sometimes you, when you say like Israel and us, there is a difference depending on what we're talking about. But in this situation, like, there really is no difference. We do see a different how it plays out in a little bit. But there's, there's, there's no difference about what we say sometimes in our own hearts about what they were saying about God, and we'll kind of flesh that out. And so really looking at the world around us and misinterpreting the data. And so uh, it's really a perception issue is what we see in Israel. Um, knowing what we know about God, right, and the Israelites wouldn't have been, uh, you know, unknowing about these things. They would have, again, like being in the church, the attributes of God being holy and loving and omnipresent and omniscient and eternal and wrathful and you know, ju- you know, full of justice and mercy and all of those things, they would have known those things. And again, they would have been living in this world where people have competing religions and completing ideas and worshiping different things, and they would have been kind of pulled in their hearts. And why do you think that would be? I mean, really, when we think about 
why they know who God is, why would then they be tempted to be swayed by some other belief system, by some other thinking, by some other religion? And he gives kind of he gives two reasons for that. Now, one is is that the people what they were doing wrong is that they were saying that those who are evil are good and blessed by God. Okay, so that was the first thing. That was what God is saying is wearying me. Now, why would you think that people would say that those who do evil are good? Like, wh- why do you think they were they were coming up with this this conclusion? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. I, I I definitely I definitely see that. Okay. What are there some other things that can can be seen, Tim? I think if we look at other people as good, it's like saying we're good. Well, if we see if we say all the uh, he's evil, but he's really good, then it it allows us to consider ourselves to be good because we're more like them than we are like God. So it's like this. Okay. This cultural thing. If we say America is good and because we're, we're a part of that, right? That. Yeah, and it normalizes things. Yeah. You know? We see ourselves as better than them, so it makes right. us think we're better than... They're evil, but they're getting prosperity, so we, we're Christians, so in our mind we think, well, we're better than them, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does normalize things. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's a, there's a lot of things that we see, and uh, probably, though, for the, for the Israelites... Um, you know that it, you know in our minds. I mean, obviously, we can we can take things and we can twist them. And I really think that's like that. That ends up being the issue. Um, I don't know if necessarily the 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 quote. I mean, the quote can be looked at in a couple of different ways. Um, you could you could start the quote where you see everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, meaning that's what he's saying, and that that God, you know, that there are basically, you know. Um, saying that about God, that everyone who does evil is what, who God blesses. Now, uh, they might be saying that. I don't know if they would get to that point. Or you could kind of push the quote back by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That basically, that's kind of what they're paraphrasing. Is that essentially, and I think what, what Tim was going at, that we see that, uh, well, both Tims were going at, but, um, but that often we see when people are blessed with material goods or in some other way, something that we see as something desirable, uh, and maybe it is something like that we want to be a part of, uh, that we say that that person is blessed. And that sometimes is true, right? If, uh, you know, somebody, there's definitely examples that, you know, uh, Old Testament examples where somebody is blessed because they have been given material goods. Um, we saw Job was blessed. Uh, he lost his family, he lost all that he had, but then God blessed him doubly by giving him all of these things. I think the, the greatest blessing was the, the, the insight about who he was in relationship to God. Um, so sometimes we see that material blessing, but there's often a couple places that we do see this issue of material blessing be a problem. Uh, can you guys think about a New Testament example of where you see that? Where there was a rich guy. Could have been young. <laughs> um, so the so the story goes. Um, 
But if you see the story of the rich young ruler, right, when he comes and he asks God, you know, what is it, what do I need to do? Um, and Jesus gives him, you know, have you done these things? And he says, yes, I've done these things. And then what does he tell him? Yeah, just so give everything to the poor and then come follow me. And he's like, ah, I can't do that, right? And, but, you know, so that one is kind of a shocking statement about how he, how he attaches that. And then, but well, how, do the, how do the disciples react? Okay, yeah, so, so, uh, so he said, you know, you know if, if, if he can't get in, then how can we get in, right? And that was, ended up being the perception. I mean, most people in Jesus' day were poor, especially compared to our standards. And, um, and so if this person who was blessed couldn't find his way to heaven, right? And that's, what, that's, why, he's, that's why Jesus said it's, it's uh, you know... Um, Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. But all things are possible with God. And, uh, and Tim Brown had said, you know, the psalmist often talks about this idea. And I think Psalm 73 kind of encapsulates it perfectly and really gets to the heart of, of what we see. So if you want to turn there real quick, because I'm going to read, just kind of read through it. And uh, I think this is, you know... Again, there's a plenty of, of applications, but I think this is probably the, the greatest application about how somebody who is evil can be considered good. Now, the material wealth of the person doesn't make that person good by any stretch, or, I'm sorry, evil by any stretch, um, but sometimes that connection can be made. Uh, their life is easier. They have, you know, they don't have the wants that I have. They're able to, you know, and, and so because so many of our, um, so, so many of our struggles uh, can be material. Uh, that's what we end up attaching. If we didn't have that struggle, then you know, we would be blessed. We would be blessed. And so uh, Asaph uh, speaks to that when he says in Psalm uh, 73, verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as other are, others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. We saw that verse last week in Malachi. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will speak thus, I would betray the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their ends. And then you can see the rest. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, you know, and kind of goes through and explains maybe a right perspective. 
But that's essentially, they hadn't gotten to that right perspective, right? They weren't going to the sanctuary and doing things of com- coming back and connecting with God, the Israelites, right? It was where, when they went to the sanctuary, it was the people there that were actually twisting um, what the people should be doing, right? They were offering sacrifices that weren't worthy. They, you know, we see the rebuke of the priests that they weren't living up to their jobs. And so even going to the sanctuary was something that the Israelite, even if they were having this struggle, would have found even worse struggles when they went to the sanctuary of the Lord. But he's saying, you know, when I back, connected back with you, Lord, everything was put back into perspective. But the Israelites hadn't gotten there. And so I think that's the first thing that often we, you know, can, can feel afflicted, right? You know, I'm doing what's right. I'm doing what you're telling me to do, Lord. But, right, I didn't get that job. I didn't get that recognition. I didn't get this, that, or the other. But these guys did. And only if you knew, only if you knew, God, what these people deal with. But what's the problem with saying, making that statement? He does, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's only if you knew. But the Lord says, I know. I know. And don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. That's, that's the first misunderstanding that we have about God. Is sometimes that we, we, we say, do you not know God? Do you not know what's going on? Right? And, and, and I'm doing these things, God. You should be doing you know, this, that, or the other. You should be. And it's almost putting yourself in the judgment seat or you, your place in the sovereignty of God. Like, if I were to plan out this world, you know, it would be a whole lot different. Uh, I have, you know, I was at this uh, robotics competition uh, last, yesterday. I know. Everybody lean in. So, <laughs> um, so uh, but I, I was kind of talking to a guy about, you know, I said, as we were talking about something, I was like, you know what would make this easier if we had done this, that, or the other? And he said, well, and the guy said, well, I'm not going to do it. And I said, well... I mean, I'm not probably not going to do it either. I said, but that's kind of like part of like the engineer's task to just look at something and say, if I had done this, I would have done this better. But, you know, only if you did it. So anyway, it was something minor, but it was like, yeah, in the long run, it's probably too much work and too much cost. But it would make life a little easier for this one moment in time. And so, but sometimes we, we act like that, right? We want to engineer, re-engineer how God designed the earth, right? As if we could do a better job. But sometimes we see kind of our own perspective and what we're dealing with in the world, and we forget that God is in control, and God knows. And so that's one part, is that saying, like, all oh, those people that are, are really evil, that starting to twist that and saying, like, well, maybe they're the ones who are blessed. They, they, have, they have it better off. They have this. And we'll actually get to some specifics about how that plays out. But that's kind of the first thinking that, that we go off track on. Now, the other second, the second thing is by asking, where is the God of justice? And so really judging God's judgment. So where is God's justice? You know, when do people ask that? When do people ask that? Where is God's justice in the world? Okay, so one could be when when you see the wicked prosper. Definitely. Like, hey, he's getting away with murder. You know, where is God in this whole thing? And so that happens. What's that? Okay, so you see that in the innocent suffering. Uh, if you want to go to, um, I'm not saying turn there, but if you want to kind of read about this in Ecclesiastes, I think it's like 4, 5, and 6, like Solomon goes through all of these things where he's just looking at the world under the sun and seeing like the wickedness around the world. And you're like, yeah. He talks about it in the courts. He talks about it in the temple. He talks about it in oppressing others. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that's still here, here today. So that's kind of in one aspect where the, the wicked prosper or the innocent suffer. Um, 
Yeah, whether it's due to some sort of war or due to something, you know, some sort of natural disaster or something like, when, God, will you make this stop? And the question is, like, so where is God? Like, God should be here. God should be doing something. And so then I ask the question, though, because sometimes when you read the Psalms, what's on, what, what, uh, what sometimes do you hear? And actually, there's a verse in Revelation that you, that you see this as well. Um, is that sometimes the psalmist asks, how long, O Lord? Right? And so you say, well, what would be the difference? What would be the difference? Between asking how long or where is God? Your heart attitude. Okay, I would definitely say your heart attitude. But again, what is your perception? Okay. Okay. Well, that, it ties into what you were just saying. It's like if I was in charge, you know, I would be have done something about this. Okay. Or done it differently, or they wouldn't be getting away with it, or something like that. Yeah, certainly, certainly. I think when you say like, "Well, how long, O oh Lord?" You have a recognition that like the Lord is still the Lord, right? And like, you know, hey, is this going to end soon? <laughs> but you, but the where is God is almost like does God even exist? Does he even care? Is he, is he even here? And so it's, it's, it's different. You know, one is acknowledging that the Lord, the Lord is the Lord and that he's just having me go through this. And the second is that the Lord isn't even around. Like, does is God even exist? And so, and that's, that's where they were getting at too. Like, where is the God of justice? It could be appealing to then go to some other God who, again, you may look at another person and he worships a different God, but he's like doing okay. And so maybe their God is the God that I should be worshiping. And what they do is what I should be doing. And, and I, you know, you, we know that, you know, so many people in, in America, I mean, in the world in general, but in America, you know, that they have these different belief systems. They can like just take all of these different beliefs and like morph them together. Like they can say like, you know, I, I, I listen to Tony Robbins and you know this uh, this guy on the West Coast, this preacher over here, you know, this televangelist over here, and like they kind of morph them together and like they pull like their whole like worldview out of all of that and just kind of pick and choose. Not saying that you can't find truth in in all of these people, but like when you shove them all together, you're like. They don't all jive, but that kind of syncretistic mentality is something that, you know, people are very prone to. And that's what Israel was prone to as well, was they were kind of taking some of those things. And then if you feel like your belief system isn't doing anything for you, you just say, well, my God, where is he? I'm going to go over here. I'm going to gravitate towards those things. And so, again, it's misunderstanding who God is and how he acts. And, yes, sometimes we will suffer and sometimes we will have pain and sometimes, you know, we will go through these trials. I mean, when I say sometimes, we will go through these times. But the how long, it's an okay thing to ask because you're still recognizing the Lord. It's in Revelation. The, the people ask, you know, that are in heaven around the throne room of God, like how long will you let the people suffer on earth? And God's just like, long enough, long enough. But it's not like they had a, a you know, again, forgetfulness about who God was. So that's kind of the second thing that we see, right? It's, it's almost like the disparaging God, right? The atheist who says, like, if God exists, you know, shoot me with lightning right now. And I, you know, it's funny seeing, I've witnessed, you know, a fair amount of street preachers, and I don't know how many times the atheist always says that. All right, there's no God, didn't strike me dead. And you're like, well, that's fortunate for you, right? Because <laughs> you have a misunderstanding about God, is that God 
is long-suffering, and we have to be on board with that as well. But he will bring that suffering to an end at some point. At some point. We just don't know when. So it's okay to ask, when will you stop the suffering God? But it's not okay to say, where is God? As if God doesn't know, or God isn't around, or he isn't omnipresent, which I don't know if that was one of the things that we said. Um, but forgetting some of those things. So case one is, we're on the throne. Case two, we recognize that he's on the throne. You could say it that way. Yeah, yeah. I like how you said it. So if you're taking notes, write what Charlie wrote. So, <laughs> so. I got that from A.W. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you see it replete through the New Testament as well, some of those commands. So, so when we get to chapter 3, and so he kind of sets that up and says, this is the problem. And, the, and so secondly, we see well, when the Lord comes, he'll, he'll come, he will swiftly, and uh, he will come with strength to purify his people. And so uh, verse 1 in chapter 3, back in Malachi, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so God says, you know, I I, I know you're asking where, you know, where am I? But if you want me to be seen and you want me to be present and you want me to be manifest before you, like these are the things that are going to happen. And he says, I will do this. And he explains like what that's going to look like. And so this is kind of talking about the day of the Lord. Now, looking back on this, we kind of see it in two parts, things that are kind of past and some things that are still future. But for Malachi and for the prophets and for the people, they would have seen all of these things as what God is going to do. And so the first thing he says is a messenger will precede him. He says, behold, I send my messenger. Now, we've heard that language before, if you know the New Testament. And who would that messenger be? Okay, John the Baptist, right? And, and so even when, uh, when it was described about John the Baptist, about a messenger coming before me, uh, that there was a verse that was quoted in Isaiah. And so Malachi being after Isaiah picked up some of that language and saying that this messenger is yet still to come. So what was the purpose of a messenger that somebody, somebody sends? Well, in those times, if there was a king and the king was coming, he would send people to come before him. It would just be like if somebody, you know, a, a music you know, band is going to come. I don't know why I said it that way. It's kind of awkward. A music <laughs> band? Shows my age. <laughs> I was going to say rock band, and then I decided, yeah, whatever. So, <laughs> Your favorite orchestra. So anyway, so anyway, somebody's coming, a play or whatever, and they're going to come and they're going to promote themselves, right? So they can draw people to you and you can prepare, you know, set aside this night, maybe this money, you know, to do that. Well, when the king comes, you better be ready. It's not like, oh, like king, I should have cleaned up before you came. Now, some of the other things that came is that, especially quoting Isaiah, is that one of the things is that I will send my messenger and what, what was he going to do? Do you remember the language that was described? As far as the paths, he will do what? 
Yeah, he will make my path straight. And essentially, it's like if I'm gonna, if a king's gonna come from here to there, and there's no direct road, uh, they're going to like clear out the way. And so sometimes it actually was like a crew that came out and clean, cleared out brush, made it made it clear so that the king had easy travel. And so that was the point of the messenger to come to kind of clear that path, all right? And John the Baptist did that. So he starts speaking about, you know, behold, the day of the Lord is at hand. And so he starts speaking some of that language because it hadn't been spoken of in such a long time and kind of getting the hearts and the minds of the people like, is it like something going to happen? Is it now? And then when Jesus comes on the scene, like John the Baptist is like, you know, I kind of prepared the way and there he is. There's the Messiah, all right? And that's why some of the disciples, you know, we're, we're asking, are you the Messiah? I think we found the Messiah because this guy, John the Baptist, has started speaking about the Messiah, speaking about this person who would be coming. And so it was John the Baptist. And so that, that, uh, that, that messenger was to get the people's attentions, to kind of clean up your act, get ready, you know, I'm coming. And so he says, I'm going to send a messenger. Well, we know that for Jesus coming, it was John the Baptist. And then when you even look in the, the, in the book of Revelation that we see before the Lord returns again, is that there will be events that will be associated with his coming. There will be a, you know, and, and those events will be uh, more of destruction, more of, um, uh, more of um, you know, visible, natural signs. But there will be two prophets that come and speak of the Lord and turn people's hearts back towards God, and they will be killed and suffer. And so you can read through the book of Revelation. But there are things that are going to happen, kind of prepare the way for the Lord to return. And so that's one thing it said, that he says, Malachi says that, and we've seen, seen you know, confirmation in, in the New Testament of that. And he says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Right? And this idea about suddenly is this kind of imminence, it's kind of quickly. And so what's the language that's often spoken of? What's like that metaphor that's, that's typically spoken of, of how the Lord will come in a quick manner, a manner unexpected? What's that? A blink of an eye. A blink of an eye, that's, that's okay. That could be one. That could be one. Okay, so a thief in the night is, is said in a couple different places. And so you, got, you have a blink in the night, you have a thief in the night. Uh, sometimes it's the language of a, of a pregnant woman, right? There's birth pangs, and then all of a sudden the, the birth arrives. And so you've got different metaphors that speak of, like, you know it's coming, or it could happen any day, but then it happens and you weren't expecting it, because no one expects a thief to break into their house. Otherwise, they would have been ready, right? They wouldn't have gone out. They would have locked their doors. Um, so... That is what the New Testament talks about the Lord coming quickly. And it says, the messenger of the covenant, which is likely the Lord himself. And when he comes, what's this going to look like? And so that's where he spends a couple verses talking about, right? He says, when he, you know, who can endure the day of his coming? Like when the Lord comes, like who really, like if you want the Lord to come and say, where is the Lord? And the Lord's like, I'm here. You'd probably be like, wait, wait, I need some more time, right? If you want to clean up your act spiritually, morally, whatever, you're like, can you come back in a couple of years? Because I'm still working out some things. Sorry, Lord. All right? Uh, and, and we see admonitions about that, that, you know, husbands and wives and the husband is supposed to help make sure to uh, purify the wife. And uh, because when the Lord returns, right, you, you want to make sure that there are, that uh, husband and wife are unblemished. Again, you know, so we see that language picked up throughout the New Testament. And so he will come, though, and we see the language that he uses, he will come to purify, right? Because why? If he is holy, which is one of the attributes that you guys had mentioned, if he is holy, what is the problem about us standing before the Lord? 
is that we are not, right? We are not. And so he's got to purify those people. And so what does it look like? He uses two images, and he says, um, uh, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And so that's kind of the description, a refiner's fire. So uh, what would be a refiner's fire? Okay, so really hot, and what is, what is a refiner? What would the refinement process be? Okay, get all the dross out. What's the last time you used the word dross outside of church? So let's please, please explain. Unless you're a jeweler, right? Okay, all right, so good. So we, so we would, yeah, so we'd probably say the, the gunk, right? The, the, the impurities, the things like that. A refiner, though, in that time would be, so yeah, a uh, modern refiner would be the coffee connoisseur. <laughs> uh, back then, what would the refiner do? So what was dross? It would be purifying of what? Okay, good. Good, yeah. So if you want pure gold, uh, that's why, you know, the psalmist says, you know, I love you like gold, like pure gold. You know, it like kind of clarifies because you can have gold, but right, there's different qualities of gold. And so the dross is when you heat it up, you separate the elements, kind of separate out through that refiner's fire. And it, like, I think it was Charlie, like he said, it was very hot, right? And so that's, that's God coming. Like when I come, I'm coming with intensity and I'm coming like that, now, the other thing was like Fuller's soap, which is something that, you know, is less, less known, not, not picked up uh, in, in other places in, in the Old Testament. So what, what is Fuller's soap? You guys know? What's that? The Fuller Brush Man. Was that just a brand? Like, Mr. Okay, yeah, so... Yeah, but I mean, it could, you know, when, when, when you, when, you know, if you know what it is, it ends up kind of being related in some way. Um, okay, yeah, so it would, be, uh, it would be this alkali that was found in this clay substance that you would use to bleach out garments. And so a fuller, his job was after somebody uh, wove, uh, made garments, right, that it would, if, it was, if it was dirty, that they would clean it. And so that was their job. And so back then they didn't have washing machines, right? And so they had to use an intense process. They had to use, you know, this chemical, right? They, they would actually have to be outside of the city. I mean, they wouldn't have to, but the neighbors were like, go outside the city with your stuff because it smelled. And so uh, that was one aspect of it. Um, and not only that, was that the actual term fuller was, means to tread. And so in order to, like, work it in, they would have to either stamp on it, you know, I guess in, in water, uh, the garments would be in this water and chemical, and they would stamp on it to get to work it in there, or they would beat it. Okay, and so when he comes like fuller soap, it would be this like bleaching process, which they would have known as something that would have been, you know, a kind of you know, if we think today of bleach like something that is strong and coming to purify and to whiten, a job that no, you know, most people wouldn't want to just pick up and do. And so he says he will sit at as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. So the sons of Levi, again, the temple workers, you know, he had already criticized them in chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, 
saying that they're full of impurities and that he's going to come with his fire and to weed them out and to separate those that are you know, true, which you would have to say that that would come with uh, his judgment upon them, right? So that then, when they are, have been purified, when those that are impure have been dealt with and cast aside, that those that are pure then are in a position that they could bring an offering to the Lord. And the same thing with the fuller, again, you know, he doesn't pick up that language again, but with the idea is that it's a process that, you know, like intense heat or a, uh, a um, purging through treading, through bleaching, through, you know, that whole process that he will purify them. And so it will likely be painful. That would be the instance, Right. To separate them isn't just like, you know, you probably shouldn't be a Levi, you know, you probably should be something else, but they were, right? And so it probably meant separating and casting casting aside judgment and death, or when he returns, it will be those who are going into eternal life or those who will be going into eternal punishment. And so he says that Judah will then be able to stand before God again, right? Because only who is without sin and holy can come before God. And so uh, let's look at, a, I want to turn to a couple verses because we see this idea about the priesthood being pure again and that the Levites will be purified for this work again. And so we would stop and we would think, well, what, you know, what's he talking about? Because Malachi, when he's talking, you know, when Jesus returns, the priesthood wasn't like reestablished or revitalized. You see in the book of Hebrews that Jesus ends up being our eternal high priest what does it end up being about the Levites? We see that, that believers are described as you know, um, a priesthood of believers, but that was what the description was for all of Israel. But Levi still had a certain uh, designation, meaning a work in the temple. And so there's these tricky chapters in the Old Testament that really... No matter what your eschatology is, it's sometimes hard to kind of deal with. And so, uh, but I want to go through through some of these verses and just at least look at um, what a description would be about the temple. And so, and usually it's it's whether this temple will be an actual temple or a some sort of spiritualized temple. But uh, if you turn to Ezekiel forty, and I'm just going to go to a couple verses about making the parallel for here because it covers you know about seven or eight chapters is that Ezekiel, at the end of his uh, um, prophecies, in chapter 40, he says, In the 25th year of our exile, so again, they, they're, they're in Babylon, or they're in some other place. But here he would be in, he would be in that area, in Babylon. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain. Okay, so this would again be, he's in Babylon, but he's transported over to Israel in this vision. On which a, was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. 
And then he goes and he describes all that he sees. And so for the next several chapters, he talks about uh, what the you know, what what the, this temple looks like, and he's given this measuring rod to measure this temple. So uh, we would see this as uh, in the millennium when. Uh, when God comes to bring his kingdom, that there will be a rebuilt temple at this time. And so, um, turn to chapter 43, because we don't need to get through all the details. We do have this vision of this temple. And it says in chapter 43, verses 1 through 6, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. We see that same language picked up in Revelation. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There was a, uh, uh, earlier in Ezekiel that he sees the glory of the Lord leaving the temple before the temple was destroyed, and the glory of the Lord was never never come back. And so, again, this is a future, you know, future idea that the glory of the Lord has come and rested. And again, we see this idea of, of uh, the Lord being in uh, the new heavens and the new earth in the future resting in this time. And so you see that at the end of Revelation as well. And so, um, while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking out of the temple and he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Okay, and uh, so so he, he kind of describes the glory of the Lord coming and that they must purify themselves for that. And I right, turn to chapter 44, just to kind of get to this idea about the, uh, the Levites. It says, um, in verse 14 of chapter 44, I will appoint them to keep charge of the temple, to do all its service and all that is to be done in it. Again, this is future. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. And they shall enter my sanctuary and approach my table. And it says everything that they're going to do. And so there is a description of, of a future sacrificial system that is picked up by the Levites and a particular uh, uh, line of Levites who... Um, had kept close to the Lord earlier in Israel's history, the sons of Zadok. And so we see that the sacrificial system will, will be picked up again. And Malachi says that, you know, ha- says that, that the people, the Levites, will be purified and that they will be able to bring to me my, you know, the offerings for me in righteousness. And so we get this idea that there will be a purification when the Lord returns. But when the Lord returns, it's going to come with intensity. And uh, if, we, if you wanted to, you can read, um, I think Revelation 6 talks about when the four horses come and all the things that happen and the description of like fire raining down and famine and pestilence and all of those things. That all of these things, that there will be this process that will come, this judgment that will come upon the earth. And this refinement, though, will be one of intensity. 
So if you ask, where is the Lord? You know, and I remember a seminary professor saying this when we would go through a, it was through a, a prayer class, but he looked at, um, you know, the, the model prayer of the Lord to the disciples, which starts off, you know, our Father who art in heaven, you know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he said, that's like a statement, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, because when his kingdom comes, it's like done, right? And, and are you ready, are we ready, like when his kingdom comes and his will to be done, that those who still don't know the Lord, right, are ready to face God, at judgment, and so that, that should be like a motivator to us, and even you know something that we just kind of pause and think about. You know, when we say to ourselves like, "Where is God?" Like, "Come, Lord Jesus." You know, Paul had said that, but he said that in a particular way. Um, are we ready for what that means? What that brings? Is it kind of more of like a like come for me because of the things that I want? But not only know that when we ask that for the Lord to come, it means everything that's involved with that. And so that's what Malachi is, you know, the Lord is saying through Malachi, right? Where is the Lord? If you want me, this is what's going to happen. And so he's like, I just want you to know this is intensity. And so we'll try, I'll try to go through quickly these, these last things. It's going to be hard for me to do. But the last thing he says that the Lord will deal with the unrighteous. And really when we start, when we start looking, you know, he kind of names all of these things. But they're really like ways that we... That most people just look at other people and say, like, that they're getting ahead, they're getting away with this, they're doing this. It's like, how, would, how are the evil people prospering? And so, verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against uh, the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so he kind of lists like all of these things. So first, you know, you see sorcerers and you're like, well, don't worry, we don't have to worry about sorcerers. But in some sense, like, you know, because that, that could be like the Pharaoh's magicians and, you know, you think about that and you're like, well, we don't have that today. But I mean, people do have those things today, right? They consult, uh, uh, you know, spiritual guides or maybe even, you know, people who say like, well, you know, this is the way, if you want to get ahead in life, you need to do these things, okay? Now, if we consult anyone without kind of having the backdrop and maybe the, uh, uh, you know, the clarification through God's will and God's word, right, we might be tempted to just do what this person says or these this system says in order to find success, or find blessing. So a sorcerer was somebody who consulted spirits or relied upon charms or rituals. And in Israel's day, they were condemned to death. In Leviticus 19.31, it says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And then in uh, in Exodus, uh, it says, Those who are sorcerers shall be put to death. Because God is saying, If you consult anyone besides me, in your affairs, just know you are, again, lending yourself to, and remember, we're surrounded by these pagan nations, Israel, that if you go to them to find out how you can succeed in life, you're going outside of my word and my wisdom and my consultation. So there should be a balance, right? You know, there should be a balance between wisdom, right, and knowledge, and tempering that with uh, the Lord. And so that would be, you know, kind of something for us, even as we say, you know, who are we consulting and how are we consulting it? And what's our motivation? Is our motivation to get out of like what we think is something that, you know, the situation we shouldn't be in? Or is this really where the Lord wants us 
to be. So that's one is sorcery. The second one, it says adulterers, right? Those who would break the marriage covenant. He's already talked about that. But what we know is, you know, those who either know people who've had, uh, who've had marital infidelity, um, Right, the issue is is usually some sort of dissatisfaction in the marriage, and so they see that by going outside the marriage, that they will find some sort of satisfaction to their life. I mean, if you kind of boil down nine out of ten or ninety nine out of a hundred, probably had that as like the paradigm. And so again, it's you know cutting corners. And in America, it even seems like you know something that in other cultures have seen seen something historically, but. Do you guys remember that uh, Ashley Madison website, you know, the, the website that was uh, set up just for infidelity, you know, there was, uh, and there was a hack that happened about a year ago, year and a half ago, and uh, 38 million users were on that account, and 18 million of them were in the United States, which amounts to, so somebody broke it down, is about 5% of the American population. So if you think like 5% have like a, an, a, has, a, has an account on this website solely devoted to setting up, you know, infidelity and affairs, you know. And that's just, you know, those who are wanting to go the technological route. And so that's just a part of something, you know. And when that hack happened and that thing was exposed and there were some people that, whose names were on there that were exposed or outed by that, you would think, oh, this website would shut down. Well, no, they've just done a facelift recently, you know, as I was kind of investigating. Oh, yeah, I remember that happening. And so, um, you know, apparently they're, you know, trying to keep up their business model, right? But we see that in movies, we see that in TV, that adultery is just a part of many storylines, right? Because for some reason, you know, it's enticing to those that are dissatisfied with the situation that they are in. And so that's Another way that people go outside of God's paradigm in order to find success whatever, or happiness or whatever they feel. Secondly, uh, thirdly, he says false witnesses. Those that are, are you know, sometimes it's translated as perjurers, right? Those that would get ahead or falsely accuse somebody. The competition. Um, I mean, we could just say the political arena, we've been you know, swimming in this for like two years or however long this thing has been going on, is that you know, false testimonies and both sides, you know, whenever they do the fact-checking, it's just, I don't even look at that anymore. I'm like, everyone's just like, you know, it's misinterpreting facts or what is a fact? I mean, I don't know if we've ever had to say that, right? <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's kind of been the, the big thing is like they both are working off of different sets of facts. So you're like, Aren't, I thought facts were like facts or truths, right? But, but even in this politics, it's like, Facts are not facts, and so we've like now redefined what a fact is. And so if it works for this candidate and works for that candidate in a different way, you know, as long as you say something that's mostly true or partially true, you know, I guess you're like, that's better than like mostly, you know, mostly false, right? But that's false. And so God spoke against, you know, dishonest scales and being a false witness, and that was the issue with Jesus, right? When he went to trial, like, they were, it says they were searching in... Uh, in Matthew 26, that they were searching for somebody to give false testimony, and no one would, and then eventually two people came forward, and they, they accused Jesus, because you needed two to uh, condemn somebody of something. And uh, so, fourthly, we see take advantage of workers. 
And so, you know, that's really just exploitation, as those who are in power exploiting those who are beneath them. And interestingly, most of these uh, things are picked up in Leviticus 19, like just statements. And this is Leviticus 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. That was an idea. Like at the end of the day, you pay the person, right? That was a part of the thing. It wasn't like, thanks for doing the work for me. I'll get you when I have the money myself. It was like, no, you set up, you know, you're supposed to pay the person fairly. But you can, you know, through our legal system, you know, you could get around that. And again, that's been brought up in our political arena. But that's just kind of how things work in the business world, right? So if that's how it works in the business world, does that mean that we should do it too? Those are the things that we need to think about, right? I mean, that guy's getting ahead because he's using that, you know, loophole. But if it goes against what God says directly, then, you know, that's something we need to say, well, maybe that Lord doesn't want me to succeed in that manner. And so taking advantage of workers, and that's talked about in Ephesians 6. Also, James 5, I mean, he goes to town on those that are, 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 uh, taking advantage of those who mow the, their fields and not paying them. And so you can read that there as well. Nehemiah also had to speak about uh, people enslaving or oppressing the poor in Nehemiah 5, which is, again, right around the same time after they built, or as they were building the wall, they were neglecting the needs of others. Um, one, two, three, four, five. Five, abuse the widows and orphans, so those who are, are unable to support themselves. I mean, that's a new low if you just you abuse the widows and orphans, right? But there are people out there who do that. And James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Acts chapter 6 was uh, the issue of some widows were being neglected, given, being given food. And so... Uh, the apostles said, well, you know, appoint certain men to go take care of that issue. We want to make sure we're taking care of those people who are in our care. But those that are wicked are those who abuse the orphans and widows. And, you know, as long as I get ahead, it doesn't matter who I abuse, right? And lastly is uh, take advantage of the traveler, those, a person who is a sojourner, right? Somebody who's coming. When they come to Israel, they should be like, wow, you worship a God who, you know, does this, you know, who, who is mighty and generous and good and all of that. And your worship reflects that in the temple and they should be like drawn to you. But instead, you take advantage of them and you push people away. And so there's other... Uh, other verses where if somebody was traveling through, you would allow their part of your field to be gleaned. You see that in the book of Ruth. When Ruth came, she was able to just, you know, and other poor people were able to take off so the things that had fallen on the ground. Some of that was just to take care of those who are in our care, right? The sojourners. And so, again, that, that becomes a bigger, big issue, right? A lot of people have hostility against foreigners. And so we just need to say, like, why is that? You know, why, why, why is that? And sometimes it's just a natural you know, we don't know and maybe assume the worst. Um, but we should look at those. I have a friend who's in uh, Germany, and they're posting on Facebook all the time because Germany was pretty open to letting the Syrian refugees in. And they just, you know, and, and even in their culture, they're saying, like, you know, people are saying we shouldn't let them in or, you know, we've let too many in. And they're like, this is a mission field, right? They're Muslim, they're coming in, and we can share the gospel, right? Because... That's, you know, they're right now at our, at our feet. It's like, we don't have to go out to the mission field. The mission field has been imported in, you know, into us. Yes, it comes with 
you know, issues. It comes with, you know, other things because of that distrust and unknowing and things like that. But, you know, we can look at it in those ways that God is working in his people. And so we need to think as Christians how we view that. And then finally, he just says, those who do not fear me. It kind of sums it all up. Those who, who uh, don't follow me and those who don't fear me, all-encompassing. And so those who don't see God as a refiner, who, come, who will come in wrath and who will come in judgment to purify because God is holy and when he comes, he will uh, come with judgment. And so that's where Malachi is. And I think there's a lot of things that we can kind of just see in our own life, you know, that was condemning to the Israelites that we can kind of reflect and say, is there any life, anything in my area that, uh, you know, I've either haven't trusted the Lord in, I haven't, you know, I've maybe had those thoughts uh, or even something that is uh, particular that God is like, you know what, I'm going to come and judge these people. And there might be an area that we're like, you know what, I probably haven't been as uh, generous as I should have or, you know, whatever it is. And so the Lord can uh, work on your heart in that area. So we'll pick this up. Uh, he's going to talk about, uh, I guess, whenever I teach next, whenever that'll be. Uh, any vacations, Tim? No, we're talking about. So uh, we'll pick it up as far as the offerings to the Lord, as far as uh, robbing God's temple and giving to the temple. So let me pray and then I'll let you go.